During our formative years, one of the ways that we're shaped is by people that God sends into our lives who serve as role models. These are people who influence us in good ways, and we often find ourselves wanting to be like them. In my life, my primary role model was my dad. And there were two things in particular I, I really admired about dad. He had a great sense of responsibility. When he said yes to a task, yes to a commitment, it got done. And then he displayed an incredible willingness to treat everyone that came across his path with great respect. And I loved that about my dad. And more than anything, I wanted to imitate that because I wanted to be like my dad. So he was a huge influence, but he wasn't the only one. I can think of other people who God sent into my life at different times and in different ways for different purposes. There was an athletic coach who really touched my life. There was a deacon in the first church I attended, a high school teacher. All those people and more helped to shape me. And I know if I was to talk with you, you could list people who've been role models in your life men or women that came along and who passed good things on to you. Good role models are so important because they help to shape our character and our behavior. And and because we admire them, we copy them and we try to reproduce their best qualities in our own lives. These are people that we really do want to imitate. And so imitating the good things that we see in another person is normal and it's natural and virtually everyone does it to a certain degree. Here's what's really interesting though. When we become followers of Jesus, we're not only supposed to imitate other people, we're also supposed to imitate God. Imitate God. The God of heaven and earth wants to be one of our role models. And that's what today's passage in Ephesians is all about. God wants us to richly flourish by learning to imitate him, and that's what Paul is going to explain. So let's take a look. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? It's right out there. Now, here's what's really interesting to me. Sometimes when we read Scripture, we get rather casual about how we do it. And we can encounter a statement like this, one short, succinct verse, and we can kind of just blow right past it. But what we need to do is stop and take a moment and think about the impact what Paul has just said. Because the reality of these words should overwhelm us a bit. Really, wait a minute. I mean, imitate a holy and perfect God? Imitate the creator of the universe? Imitate the God who sees everything, knows everything, and is everywhere present? Come on! I think any normal person in Ephesus reading this for the first time would probably think, Paul, you must be joking. How in the world 
can an ordinary, finite human being imitate Almighty God? And if that's not enough, add to the fact that God's invisible. (laughs) And it's kind of hard to imitate somebody you can't see. Well, obviously, as limited human beings, we can't imitate and reproduce everything about God. So what's Paul really saying to us? Here's what I think we need to understand. God's greatest concern is with our character, and Paul addressed that in the passage we explored last week. God continually wants to form within us a godly character, which then shows up in the way that we live and treat other human beings. And Paul now is extending that thought here in chapter five, and he's adding some key details. And based on what he previously wrote, he wants us to understand that imitating God is a matter of embracing God's character. And here's what's really awesome. To help us toward that goal, the invisible God gave us a personal example of what God in human form looks like. He gave us Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus, the Son is the exact same character and nature as God the Father. So we're not stuck with trying to imitate an invisible God. We have the real life, flesh and blood, role model of Jesus that we can emulate. And so you and I aren't God, and we're never gonna be God. But we can imitate God by following Jesus and embracing the qualities of his character in our own lives. So here in verse one, Paul establishes establishes this principle as the foundation of the passage, and then he's gonna go on and describe a number of specific things that followers of Jesus should do in order to imitate God. And if you and I allow God to continually reshape our character, then we will find it possible to increasingly do the things that are listed in the rest of this passage. Paul is gonna highlight three specific aspects of God's character that we should strive to imitate, and it's because these three things really affect us and others. These particular characteristics have a significant impact on us and the people around us. And so the first thing we need to do if we want to imitate God is to express God's love. Let's continue on in verse two. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
So Paul begins by telling us that love should permeate our lives. That's because of who Jesus is. He loved us and he died for us. And then Paul spells out some behaviors that give evidence of a loving character. And there's a particular thread that binds all this together. If we're expressing God's love, then we won't engage in behavior that harms ourselves or harms other people. And you see, we often misunderstand, misunderstand love, but God, and God's love is generous, but it's not a love of anything goes. It's not a love that encourages self-indulgence. God loves us enough to say, don't do that, because it's not good for you or the people around you. And Paul gives us some specific examples of those limits on love, those boundaries on love. So, for example, we're encouraged to avoid any sexual behavior that is immoral or impure. Impure, in this context, means perverse. So what's the difference between immorality and perversity? Well, sexual intimacy has been designed by God to be experienced within the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife. That's normal and it's moral. When sexual activity happens outside of marriage, it's immoral, but it's not necessarily perverse because perversity refers to sexual acts which degrade one or more of the people involved. And Paul highlights that because in Ephesus, there was a lot of sexual immorality and there was a lot of perverse sexuality. And that's because Ephesus was a community that exalted sex. This city had a temple to a goddess named Artemis. And she was the goddess of fertility, and the way that you worshipped her was through all forms of sexual activity, much of it very bizarre and perverse, way outside the boundaries established by God. And this was rampant in the community. The only way believers in Ephesus could protect themselves against getting sucked into that was by imitating God rather than by imitating the behavior of the people around them. In that culture, it was very critical that when it came to sexual expression, they needed to pick the right role models. The role model of their community was not healthy. And I think we understand that because the temptations in the sexual area of life are just as profound today. Pornography and adultery permeate our culture. And it's important to understand that it's not just men who fall into these traps. Did you know that the fastest growing group to embrace pornography today is women? And that's true. And it's a direct result of the invention of the e-book, the electronic book. You see, when you read a book on your e-reader, your device, there's no book cover, which means nobody knows what you're reading. And you can sit out in public and read anything you like, and nobody's going to know, because there's no sorted cover that's showing people what you're looking at. And publishers have discovered they can take traditional female-oriented romance books, spice them up with graphic descriptions of sexual encounters, and lots and lots of women will buy those e-books. 
oh, human sinfulness. We take good things that are invented and we always find a way to misuse them. None of this is good for the hearts and minds and souls of the women who read that stuff any more than it's good for men to look at porn on the internet. And here's what strikes me. The centuries come and the centuries go, but the temptations stay the same because the human condition is the same. And so God asks us to harness our sexual appetites for our own good and for the good of others because sexual activity outside of God's boundaries always is harmful. Yes, it may be pleasurable in the moment, but it cannot and will not nourish the human soul. In a similar way, Paul warns us against covetousness. And covetousness is... is Read, basically. It's when we want stuff. We want money and we want possessions. And Paul's saying, just as you need to harness your sexual appetite, you need to harness your materialistic appetite. And when we become greedy for cash or for things, we can find ourselves then sometimes taking unfair advantage of other people. We can find ourselves losing a sense of generosity to share what we have with those in need because we want to keep our hands tightly gripped on our stuff. Covetousness is not good for our own souls and it's not good for the people around us. And so just as sexual impurity and greed were issues back in the first century, they're an issue today. And I think one of the reasons that we take these things lightly is that we like to joke about them. And we joke about them because we don't take them very seriously. Paul talks here in verse 4 about foolish talk and coarse joking. And I find that interesting because I think one of the leading edges of the direction of our culture today is comedy. And sadly, the humor in our society is in a very downward spiral. A whole lot of our humor today is very coarse and very degrading. And a whole lot of it focuses on sex. When we lived in Southern California, there was a comedy club that I really enjoyed attending. But I had to stop going because the caliber of the humor was getting so bad. And it was funny. It was making me laugh. But that doesn't mean it was good for me. And so to imitate God, I walked away from it. To imitate God, I gave up something I enjoyed. And once I stepped away from it, I found that I didn't really miss it. And by removing something from my life that was not godly, I made space for God to move in and help my soul flourish more richly. So I gave up comedy clubs, but I sure didn't give up humor because laughter is a great gift from God and it's good and it's wonderful and sometimes it's even healing for our souls when we use it properly. There are many funny things in life, and our home's always been a place full of laughter. 
and we enjoy humor and fun together. We just need to learn to laugh in a way that helps us imitate God. To laugh at appropriate things in appropriate ways. And so as Paul's talking here about sex and covetousness, money and possessions and conversation, and how, how do we actually imitate God in these particular areas of life? We do it by learning some self-control. And according to Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, self-control comes from the Holy Spirit. It's part of the fruit that he grows in our character. And so as I yield to the Spirit, I can more and more practice self-control in my sexuality, in the way I handle money and possessions, in my conversation, and in my humor. And the more that I do that, the more that, that I am imitating God. And I am allowing my character and my behavior to reflect God's love. And when we learn to love within the boundaries established by God, it is incredibly freeing and it adds greatly to the richness of life. So if we want to imitate God, then the first thing we need to do is express God's love. And after laying that out, Paul then moves on to a second aspect of God's character that we need to imitate. He says we need to shine God's light. So let's continue on in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Listen to this, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Excuse me. Excuse me. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Throughout the Bible, truth and godliness often are pictured as light, while lying and evil often are pictured as dark. And that's because the light of God's truth can expose the darkness of Satan's lies. When you and I pursue the light of God's truth, then the actions of the enemy who wants to undermine our faith will become ever more clear. We'll see his lies more plainly. And as we see those lies and we gain clarity about God's truth, we'll turn away from behavior that's harmful to ourselves and others. And people we see in us more and more the goodness and the love of God. And the more people see those things in us, the more likely they are to want to imitate us because they will see us shining God's light in a way that is distinctly different from the culture. And help us head in the right direction. Paul urges us to guard ourselves against 
deception. And in verse six, he calls this the deception of empty words. Words that are empty are words that sound good and may make us feel good, but actually have not much substance. We get a lot of empty words from politicians. <laughs> and in the church, empty words are spoken by people when they want to say something that tickles our ears and attract attention to themselves, but they're saying something that's not grounded in the light of God's truth. And the problem of false teaching, people teaching empty words, that, that problem has been around since the first century. And every generation or so, someone seems to come along with a new message which sounds attractive and appealing. But if the message is not from God, if it's not anchored in the truth of the scriptures, then the words are empty, the message is false, and it will not help us imitate God. And here's an example. A few years ago, something called the health and wealth gospel was trendy and popular. Do any of you remember hearing about that? No, some of you, okay. But here was the idea of the health and wealth gospel. God wants every single Christian to be materially well off. And God wants every Christian to experience nearly perfect health all the time. And there were scores of books written on this stuff, and oh, they appealed to various scriptures. You could go to conferences and learn about this new approach to the gospel, and a whole lot of pastors got caught up in this stuff, and this teaching swept through a number of churches. And why is that? Oh, because it sounded good. And it felt good. But what it was doing was appealing to our old selfish nature. The selfishness that wants life to be easy and successful. It was an appeal to the old nature that God wants us to leave behind as Paul described in chapter 4 and we discussed that last week. And the reality is not everyone in this life will be healthy and wealthy. That's just not how it works. And I've got a cold today. Does that mean I'm unrighteous? No. It means I'm a broken human being living in a fallen world full of germs. That's just life. And rather than try and talk ourselves into some idealistic thinking that's not real, what we need to do is live by faith and let God walk with us through the circumstances in which we find ourselves. God has promised to meet our needs and he's promised to sustain us. And he will. Even when money is tight and even when we're battling sickness. So because the health and wealth gospel is an appeal to our old nature, then it's not grounded in the light of God's truth. And if we embrace false teaching like this, then we're allowing ourselves to be deceived by empty words. So whenever we hear new teaching, we need to ponder it, pray over it, and go back to the scriptures and say, is this in line with the light of God's truth? Because we don't want to be deceived. 
We want to keep imitating God. And so part of what Paul wants us to understand is that temptations for believers come from outside the church, and they also come from inside the church. It wasn't any different in the city of Ephesus. They had this perverse sexuality going on in their community, and there were secret idolatrous rituals that were very ungodly. And then there also were false teachers who would show up and promote cool new ideas that didn't line up with the teachings of Jesus. And the church faces this in every generation. Challenges from within, challenges from without. And so Paul says to believers, avoid all the stuff that comes from darkness and walk in God's light. And the more that you walk in God's light, you can engage in behaviors that are good and right and true, behaviors that are anchored in the truth of the scriptures, and then you'll be able to continue to imitate God. And behaviors that are good and right and true flow naturally out of a Jesus-shaped character. All of these matters are very serious, and Paul drives home his point in verse 14 with a quote when he says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, we don't recognize that quote, but the words would be very familiar to Paul's readers because they're most likely a line from a popular first century hymn. These are words that the church would sing. And these words are a wake-up call for believers. It's a warning. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Pay attention to what we're thinking and doing. And let the light of Jesus shine through us. And that is great advice for believers in every generation. And so as we strive to imitate God, we express God's love. We shine God's light. And then Paul wraps up this section with a third aspect of God's character that we should try to emulate. We embrace God's wisdom. Let's continue on. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And now he tells us, what people filled with the Spirit do and what their life looks like within the community of faith. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, Paul talks about the problems of drunkenness because in addition to worshiping the goddess Artemis, the city of Ephesus also worshiped a god called Bacchus, and Bacchus was the god of wine. And so just as you worshiped Artemis through sexual excess, you worshiped Bacchus through alcoholic excess. So what better way to honor that god than to get drunk? 
And what better way to honor both gods at the same time than to have a drunken orgy? And there was a lot of that going on in Ephesus. It's how pagans worshipped. And Paul says, oh, that's not a wise way to live. And that's why, as he told us last week in chapter 4, Paul said, don't live like your culture. If we want to imitate God's wisdom, we cannot take our cues from the culture. And so Paul describes a powerful contrast here. And basically he's saying, what is shaping your character? Is your character being shaped by an excess of alcoholic spirits? Or is your character being shaped by the Spirit of God? Consume too much alcohol and your personality and temperament will change. And likely not for the better. Oh, but if we strive to imitate God and yield to the influence of the Holy Spirit, then our character grows and changes in ways that are good and godly. God's Spirit helps us make wise choices. Unlike alcohol, which chemically depresses the part of the brain where we make decisions about how to control ourselves. And that's why drunk people lose their self-control, while spiritual people imitating God improve their self-control. And so there's a word of caution here about the need for healthy boundaries once again. And so if you choose to drink alcohol, please, please, please do it in moderation. Never yield your self-control to anything or to anyone except to the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And when we let the Spirit lead us, then the richness of life emerges more and more. As we increasingly learn self-control, as we increasingly embrace God's wisdom and live it out, then the church becomes increasingly an uplifting place. A community of spiritual music and thankfulness. A community where we encourage each other in the life of faith. And there's one more aspect of our life together that's really important, which Paul addresses in verse 21. But first I need to make a comment about the way that verse often is portrayed in our Bible translations. We are blessed to have a plethora of Bible translations today. But one of the things that I hate is when Bible translators insert subheadings into the passages. And subheadings are not part of God's inspired text. They are editorial intrusions. And I know the translators are trying to be helpful by giving us a subhead that says, oh, this is kind of the the topic that you're going to be reading about next, but the placement of these subheads is highly subjective. And because they break up the passage, they can have, have an adverse effect on how we read and understand God's word. And verse 21 is a case in point. Some Bible versions, like the ESV that we use, insert a subhead after verse 21. So then, as we're reading, we tend to link it with what we just read here. But then it means we kind of mentally leave it behind when we move on to the next section. Many other Bibles 
insert the subhead before verse 21, which means that we don't really think about it in connection to the passage that we've just been reading. We leave it for the next section. And this causes us to miss something really, really important because verse 21 is what I call a hinge verse. It gives us a rich insight into our life together in the family of God, which we've just been talking about. And then Paul moves on in the section that we're going to talk about next week, it also gives us rich insight into our life together in our own families. Verse 21 is the hinge between these passages, and so we need to keep it connected to both. And so today, this verse is a wonderful culmination to all that we've read. And next week, it will be a wonderful lead-in to what we will read. And here's why verse 21 is so rich. As God transforms our character, we become a community that practices mutual submission. That's a short way of saying what Paul said. He said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. Now, we get really hung up sometimes on the word submission. But it simply means to voluntarily show deference to another or to willingly yield to another. And in the church, we defer to each other based on our different gifts and abilities. We yield to each other based on the different roles we play in the church. And here's why this is so important. It's a hugely significant aspect of what it means to imitate God. Remember, God has chosen to reveal himself to us in three distinct ways, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, one God. And guess what? Each person of God has a distinctive role to play in our lives. Which means that they defer to each other so that each one can play his proper role. To give just two examples, Jesus, only Jesus, went to the cross. The Father didn't, the Spirit didn't. Only the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. You see, each person of God trusts the others to play their parts and they willingly and selflessly defer to that. And so in a similar way, you and I imitate God when we defer to each other as we let people use their different skills and abilities and gifts to enrich our life together. And what does that actually look like? Well, we practice mutual submission when we let different people lead us in musical worship because we're honoring their gifts and affirming the part they play in the church. And rest assured, we are better served having our music team up here leading songs than somebody like me. See, I I might love to be up here, but I yield to their gifts and talents and abilities. And every week I submit to the wisdom of the tech team because they know way more about sound and lighting and media than I do. And I submit to the wisdom of those who decorate our stage because I wouldn't have a clue about how to do that. (laughs) Amen is right, and thank you. (laughs) Our elders practice mutual submission in their meetings as they listen to each other 
and strive to find common ground with each other without imposing their preferences on one another. Mutual submission is a powerful way to embrace the wisdom of God. And as we learn to appropriately defer to one another, then we will find ourselves encouraging each other, loving each other, and helping each other better imitate our incredible God. And the more you and I imitate God, the more we will flourish. The richer our lives will be. And you know what happens then? The more we flourish, the more outsiders are likely to see Jesus in us. A number of years ago, I knew a man named Robert who was a locker room attendant in a high school. Working as a locker room attendant is not a job that ranks high in either pay or social status. But the way Robert performed that job enabled him to become a man of incredible significance. You see, Robert didn't find his identity or his self-worth in his position or his pay. He found his identity in Jesus Christ. And throughout his life, he had one overriding goal. He wanted to imitate God. And so above all things, he strived to live out what we just read from the Apostle Paul. Robert wanted to be a man who expressed God's love, who shined God's light, and who embraced God's wisdom. And he brought that character with him into the high school locker room. Now, a locker room full of rambunctious young men can be a pretty raucous place. (laughs) Sometimes a place full of some pretty ungodly chatter. It was a place that needed God's light. And Robert brought that. And so he became a friend and a confidant and a mentor to many, many, many of the teens that passed through this locker room. Many of them came from broken families and had no positive male role models. Many of them were under peer pressure to get involved with drugs or to join local gangs. But Robert became a man who they could imitate. And they found themselves wanting to imitate his character and his values and his faith. And so the coaches, the ones who usually get all the attention, they taught the young men to play sports. But Robert taught them how to live life with godly character. And that's what those young men saw. That's what they gravitated to. That's what they wanted to imitate. His funeral was the largest funeral service I've ever conducted. Hundreds of people came. And we had an open time of sharing that was amazing. Boy after boy, man after man stood up to tell their stories. Because of Robert's influence, they stayed out of gangs. They avoided drugs. Dozens and dozens of those young men became followers of Jesus Christ. And many of them went into the ministry. You see, at a critical moment in their lives, as these men looked at their culture 
So do I want to imitate that? No, I don't. Who or what can I imitate? There's Robert showing me a different way. I'm going to imitate him. And they discovered that Robert was imitating God. And so Robert didn't draw people to himself. He drew people to Jesus. And he left a legacy that made an eternal difference in the lives of many, many young men. In the eyes of the world, Robert was just a locker room attendant. In the eyes of the world, he was a simple man of limited education doing a simple low-end job. But for the young men who knew him, he was an ideal role model. His life was worth imitating because it was a life filled with God's love and God's light and God's wisdom. How do you want to be remembered? What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Follow Paul's advice and become an imitator of God. Then you will become the kind of person that others want to imitate. And then you can help draw them to Jesus who you're trying to imitate. And so let's all make a commitment to imitate God for our own sake and also for the sake of people we know who are spiritually adrift. People we know who need a good role model to give them direction and give them hope. When we imitate God, we will flourish. And the people in our lives will see something different than they see in our culture. And some of them will say, oh, I want to be like God that and we can invite them into the rich experience of imitating God so that they also can spiritually flourish please pray with me Lord imitating you can be a huge challenge and help us to realize that we can do this with your help Teach us to rely on the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit to turn away from self-indulgent and harmful behavior. Please help us daily to pursue your love and your light and your wisdom so that people will see Jesus Christ in us. Father, as we strive to imitate you, may we flourish. And may our flourishing draw people to us. May they want to come to us and say, I like what I see in you. I want to be like that. And we can show them how to walk with us in imitating you, Lord. Father, write the truth of this scripture on our hearts today. And may it show up in our lives. For our sake and for the sake of people around us, who do not yet know Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.